0: Hello and welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simiou, and welcome to this week's edition of the Members Mailbag, the show built around you guys' questions. You, our loyal and loving members, uh, if you want to become a member, before I forget, uh, please do click on the link in the description or if you're watching via your PC, there should be a join button just underneath the video. If you are listening via audio, unfortunately, you can only sign up via YouTube, but I promise you, uh, you'll enjoy being a part of this members community. It's fantastic. We've got some great people and I always very much look forward to doing these shows. Now, I have to start off by apologizing because I was supposed to bring you the members mailbag on Tuesday lunchtime. Unfortunately, I've been hit by a bit of a cold. Yep, again, another one, a sore throat, a cough, all the things that you don't want when you rely on your voice to bring the bread home. But it is what it is. Um, Not feeling 100%, but I'm back. And I'm looking very much forward to this podcast. Let's say a few hellos to some of you in the live chat box. Uh, Lots of regulars uh, in here today. Big hello to Henry, uh, to Steve, to Paul. Um, to Maximus, hope you're well, my friend. To Dalisu, hope you are good as well, mate. Uh, big hello to Junior Gunner. Uh, Emile Smith Rowe is here, apparently brilliant. Uh, big hello uh, to Justin. He says good afternoon, Matt Tomo, uh, with a Ukraine flag in there. Yes, um, thoughts are going out to all of those people that are currently uh, suffering the attacks because it's just not on, not in this day and age. Uh, we've kind of touched on it before, and you know, it's it's really it's a subject I don't know enough about, you know, but I do know that at any kind of point, whenever you're attacking innocent people, it's just wrong. Um, it's, it's just pure wrong. Uh, so we do send our wishes and love to everybody who's currently struggling, suffering and fighting back. Um, you know, everybody's with you. Everybody's thoughts are with you. Uh, big hello to Matt. Uh, Steve says, my Marine broadcasting with man flu. Yeah. And you know, when you get man flu, right? It's like, You're trying to explain to your other half what you feel like. And they just don't get it. It's just a cold, man up, blah, blah, blah. Man flu is so much worse than normal flu or a normal cold. It is horrible. And I have felt like shit. But, you know, trying to get them to cut you some slack is not always as easy as it probably should be. Um, Big hello to Brad, uh, to Jid. Uh, to GB, to Jack, to Momin, to Manny. I hope you guys are all well. Okay, let's start working our way through the members' mailbag. And there's some great questions in there, as always. A variety of questions, some about Arsenal in their current state, and some, of course, uh, a little bit more sentimental, a little bit more historical, a little bit more hypothetical, which is great, because it makes for a nice mix of questions. Let's start with this one from Trev, who says, Harry, three players you wish had pulled on the shirt for us and Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi are both off the table. Okay, so three players I'd have loved to have seen play for the Arsenal. Three players who I'd have wanted to see wearing the Arsenal kit, uh, apart from Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, that didn't. Now, I'm going to go down the whole sentimental route here. I'm going to go for players that, for me personally, were just unbelievable and players that really captured my imagination as a youngster falling in love with the game as opposed to just the obvious names, right? So one of them that I'm going to start with is a striker, a centre forward who really played his best football in the Serie A, uh, played for an, a number of clubs in the Serie a, Argentine International, uh, the man they call Batigol. I mean, Gabriel Batistuta for me unbelievable forward. Really, honestly, such a good player. Um, And he's one of those players for me that you you kind of, you can't help but love looking from the outside. And remember that Gabriel Batistuta, uh, of course, scored goals against Arsenal. And you're still kind of sitting there going, well, this guy's unbelievable. This guy is one of those players that for me is just, you know, elite, you, you know, I used to, the, the thing I used to love about Serie A and the reason I kind of fell in love with that league is not just because of the actual football, but it's all the passion around it. It's all the history behind it. And people like Gabriel Batistuta, when they used to score goals, you know, it, it felt like they'd won the World Cup. Like every goal was met with such incredible celebrations. And that passion, I don't think you get that in every player. So to see that from a player who was also so, so good. And just as a, as a young striker myself at the time as well, he was a real inspiration. I'd have loved to have seen him wear the Arsenal shirt. So bear in mind, I'm not picking necessarily the best three players that Arsenal never signed, but I'm going for players that for me, um, you know, just really captured my imagination. And, and Gabriel Batistuta is definitely up there. Another one is is Paolo Maldini. And you'll, you'll get that there's a bit of a seria kind of theme developing here. Uh, but Paolo Maldini, for me, Unbelievable defender who was not only incredibly comfortable at left back, but was incredibly comfortable at centre back as well. Anywhere on the left hand side, he was fantastic. He famously said, You know, if you have to go to ground, then you've already messed up. A player who wanted to stay on his feet, who read the game so brilliantly. I think one of the best defenders of all time. Probably the best defender that. I remember. Now I know people talk a lot about Baresi and, and others and Beckenbauer, etc. But you know, for me, Paolo Maldini was was just right up there. Caught obviously quite a, a fair amount of his um, of his career and and on that basis, I think that he definitely goes into that category for me. And the other player is Andres Iniesta. Now, when I was growing up, you know, Obviously, Arsenal were were in a really good state. We had a great team, Arsene Wenger's Invincibles. We played a wonderful brand of football. And it wasn't very often that I went to Arsenal and came away thinking, even when we'd lost games, oh, wow, that team were just on a different planet to us, or that player was just on a different planet to anything that we had. And if you think back to those games we had against Barcelona, I know people always say, oh, you know, Jack Wilshire handled him. Jack Wilshire uh, handled that Barcelona midfield. Just to watch those guys in action, in the flesh, was an honour. And I don't think at the time I appreciated how good, um, you know, h- how good Andres Iniesta was. He, he was unreal. He was brilliant. Uh, but now that I look back on it and I think about that Barcelona team, I think I'm very privileged to have seen arguably one of the best teams ever uh, play in front of me at Emirates Stadium. So uh, my three players are Gabriel Batistuta, Paolo Maldini and Andres Iniesta. That's a nice spine to a team, isn't it, as well. Uh, lots of you uh, talking about uh, Maldini in there as well. Um, Terence uh, mentions Frank De Boer. Yeah, the, the, the two De Boer brothers. I really enjoyed watching both of those guys play. Uh, back in their heyday. Frank De Boer, not such a great manager, though, based on his time um, at uh, at Crystal Palace. Uh, GB says, Maldini was just one of the best. Not as good as Beresi, but close. I don't really remember Beresi. Um, you know, I, I maybe remember sort of the back end of his career but it's not enough for me to kind of put him there. I appreciate that he's someone that people will talk about quite a bit and that people will always say is, is, is the number one, the goat, if you like, in terms of Italian defenders. But that's why I've gone with Maldini because I want to go with players that to me um, meant something that captured my imagination. And that, of course, I remember. Uh, Yogesh says, Harry, please bring the old background back. Yeah, I'm not in the n- normal place, which is why uh, the background is different. It's a, uh, It's because I'm not where I normally uh, record the podcast from, but uh, feedback taken on board. (laughs) Okay, uh, let's move on through the questions. Uh, Joe Kerr says, Harry, how would you roadmap each upcoming season towards a potential title win in four years' time? What milestones should we be picking up and targeting along the way, similarly to what Liverpool did, as we are both under a supposedly self-sustaining model? This is really interesting because I think now in in 2022, it's harder than ever to win a Premier League title playing the way that, not not playing, sorry, operating the way that Arsenal do and that Liverpool have. And I think that's what makes Liverpool's achievement of winning the title even more incredible because... For me, I've said it for ages, there, there is a direct correlation between the teams that spend the most money and the teams that win the most trophies in most instances. You know, you look at Manchester City, they've built an absolute machine there, not just on the pitch, but off it as well. They've gone and brought in executives, people who have been there, done it, been in the background at some of the most successful clubs in the world, i.e. Barcelona. They've brought them to Manchester and they are overseeing the running of that club. At the end of the day, You pay for what you get. And if you pay top dollar, you'll get quality. And that's what Manchester City have done. Chelsea operated in a similar way over the last 20 years or so. If you look at how much success they've had in multiple competitions, it's been as a result of them being able to invest more than everybody else. So, you know, I think it's it's going to be really difficult for Arsenal to win the Premier League. Is it impossible? Well, no, because Liverpool have proved that it isn't. But I always say this to people as well. And and Liverpool fans seem to get pissed off when I say this. And, and, you know, the whole, oh, you've got an agenda against Liverpool thing comes out. But there's a good chance that Jurgen Klopp leaves Liverpool having only won one Premier League title. Now, would that be representative of what a good job he's done at the club? I don't think it would be. But, you know, it, there's not a great deal we can do about that because of Manchester City's superiority in the transfer market in terms of what they can spend. You know, Jurgen Klopp's a, a brilliant manager and he's managed to bridge that gap between Liverpool and Manchester City. But Pep Guardiola is also a brilliant manager as well. And so that gap is not always possibly bridged because, you know, if if they've got more resource than you and they've got a manager as good, if not better than you and better players than you, it becomes really, really difficult I think for Arsenal, you know, a lot of Arsenal fans aren't going to want to hear this, but the title is a million miles away. It really does feel like that. The first step is to be back in the Champions League and to re-establish ourselves as a European force. And then from then on, I think we can push on and look to expand in terms of what our expectations are. But I just think at this moment in time, it's way too early to be talking about a Premier League title win. You're kind of a bit like what happened with Liverpool, relying on everything to click into place over you know, a, a period of time. And, and often that window is very, very short. You know, if you think about Liverpool, they were at an incredible level the season before they won the league when they missed out on the title by, I think, a point, having amassed something like 97 points. That was a team worthy of winning the Premier League title. But it was just unfortunate for them that, of course, Manchester City were at a slightly higher level. And, you know, how often are you going to find a team that are at a higher level than that? Not very often. So sometimes circumstance can dictate these things. And sometimes circumstance can prevent you achieving what you feel you maybe deserve to achieve. And I think that's certainly the case when it comes to Liverpool. In terms of milestones, we've got to get back in the Champions League. <coughs> I beg your pardon. First and foremost, we've got to get back into the Champions League. And from then, I think in two, three seasons, we can look at being in a position where we're going to challenge. It doesn't mean we're going to win it. Um, You know, to to be in a position where we're challenging still feels like incredible progress. But, you know, you're not going to get me coming away from Emirates Stadium if we fail to win a Premier League title because Manchester City or Chelsea have spent more money than us, saying that it's the club's fault or pinning it on the club. The chances of doing it with less resource are much lower than they ever have been. Like, I always have this argument with my dad. You know, my dad always says stuff like, Brian Clough won the European Cup twice with Nottingham Forest. What an achievement. And it is a wonderful achievement. And it's one that rightfully deserves its place in the history books. But that would never happen in 2022. Because the footballing landscape has changed so dramatically because we're now in a place where finance and resource dictates the levels that you can achieve in most cases. There are anomalies to that. You know, you look at Leicester City when they won the league, but you're relying on every circumstance, everything to kind of fool your way. You look at, um, you know, Manchester City now, how superior they are in terms of resource and in terms of quality. You look at Chelsea, you feel like at any given point they can push up to that level. Manchester United throw shit tons of money at it, but haven't got the manager status and all that stuff right, um, which has been a problem for them. They've signed badly. I I, I take it back to Liverpool, though, because Liverpool are a side who have hit unbelievable levels, but that has a shelf life. That particular squad of Jurgen Klopp's, no matter how much he wants to try and rebuild it, isn't going to last forever. And is he going to be able to rebuild it time and time again, given that he's got less resource than a City or Chelsea or a United? I don't think so. I think, as I said, there's a good chance Liverpool part ways with Jurgen Klopp and he's just got one title on the board, one league title that is. And as I keep saying, that isn't representative of how good of a job he's done. It's the circumstances that need to be taken into account. But there'll be people out there who say Jurgen Klopp weren't that great. He only won one Premier League title. And this is the point. I've gone around the houses, but the point is that to achieve Premier League title success is so much harder when you're one of those sides with less resource than it's ever been. I don't think Arsenal win the league in the next four years unless the model under which the club operates changes dramatically, unless Arsenal are going to um, pump money in where is needed. And maybe if we're in the Champions League regularly again, and maybe if we're right at the top and competing and and maximising the resources available to us, KSE will look at it and go, well, you know what? We're this close. So why not make that little bit more investment? And maybe we can get there. That would be amazing. But having said all of that, Arsenal are moving in the right direction. Arsenal, in my opinion, have adopted the right approach. Given the way we operate as a football club, given the model we have in place, this is the way to do it. Blood through youngsters, keep them all together, keep them all engaged, keep them all, um, you know, uh, as a unit and then add some quality to kind of complement that core and that spine that we have at Arsenal Football Club now. And who knows? Football is football. Anything can happen. The old f- phrase goes, football's a funny old game. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but I, outside of becoming regular participants in the Champions League again, I'm not really looking that far forward. I'm not really looking at it and going, well, we have to be winning a title within four years because I recognise how difficult that is. Is it what I want? No. I want Arsenal to be winning titles. I grew up watching Arsenal lift titles. So obviously I want that. Obviously it's, it's, you know, what I want to see, but I'm also realistic enough to understand that there are clubs out there run by oligarchs. You know, there are clubs (laughs) out there backed by states and they have much more resource or at least willing to spend much more. And, and that makes it very, very difficult to compete. OK, let's move on. Uh, PM1Guna says, uh, why did you choose Arsenal? For me, growing up with a name like Murphy, I got a lot of anti-Irish digs. And a friend at school, Billy O'Shea, introduced me to Arsenal with all the Irish players. Yeah, of course, there's a huge and really strong Irish connection Um between Arsenal and fans because of, as you say, that history where there was a lot of Irish players uh, within the group. For me, why did I choose Arsenal? Well, if I'm being completely honest, I had no choice whatsoever. Uh, my dad brainwashed me from a very, very young age. Um, obviously fell in love with the Arsenal and it's been kind of on me to keep that going. And, you know, the passion I feel for it today is is something that you just kind of have, isn't it? But yeah, um, that that's why for me. I was... I was introduced to Arsenal at a very young age. I I fell in love with football. I've always considered myself as probably more of a football man than an Arsenal man, though. Because as much as I love Arsenal and adore Arsenal, I I love the game of football in general. Like, I keep banging on about it. I'm a massive Serie A fan. I love sitting and watching that. I love sitting and watching all forms of football, any league, any competition. And, And I think to myself, if... You know, some people fall in love with a club and that's their route into then loving football. But I think I love football, which got me into the sport. And then over the years, I, I grew to love Arsenal more and more. But I think I'm a football man before an Arsenal man. I know that might surprise people, but that, that's that's genuinely the truth, I think. Good question. Um, And always interesting to hear people's stories about how they... um how they uh, got into football and how they support, or how they ended up supporting who they do. Um, Sursa Bowl says that after watching your tactical analysis, this would have been after the Brentford game, I think. it solidified for me that Emile Smith-Rowe is and should be an option at false nine, which is what Lacazette is doing now without the clinical end product. So why not try Martinelli as the wide left forward, Emile Smith-Rowe as the false nine and Saka outright, with Odegaard in the 10. That leaves Pepe and Lacazette as options from the bench and Eddie as a last resort. Um, I've spoken about this before. The idea of Emil Smith-Rowe playing as a false nine, it's not something I'm ruling out. It's not something I'm completely dismissive of. Everybody seems to point back to that time where we played Villarreal in the Europa League, Mikel Arteta beaten by Unai Emery and the kind of One of the big issues that a lot of fans had was the decision to play uh, Emile Smith-Rowe in that first leg as a false nine. It didn't work. But what I would say is that this Arsenal team is a much better, much more stable um, and much more capable Arsenal side than the one that Emile Smith-Rowe played false nine in. But Kai Osaka's got better, Martin Odegaard's in the side um, and he's playing at a really, really high level. There's a much better midfield structure behind uh, those guys to facilitate that we've got a much better defense overall. This is a much better Arsenal side than the one that Emil Smith Rowe played false nine in at Villarreal. So I'm not gonna say it's my go to, I'm not gonna say it's what I want to see because I don't. I think that there are, um, there are a number of reasons why Emil Smith Rowe for me isn't quite, um, you know, isn't quite cut out to be a false nine. I think physically it's a really demanding role. I think if you watch Lacazette and you watch the way he goes into tackles is on the receiving end of tackles, you need to be quite robust. You need to be quite physical. You need to be quite durable in terms of people smashing into you. Um, you need to be unselfish. You need to have a very certain skill set. And I think for me that Emil Smith-Rowe, just has so much to offer from the wide position where he can pick up the ball in space. The key is space. You don't get space as a false nine. Often you're dropping into deeper positions to create space for others. Therefore, somebody like Emile Smith-Rowe, in my opinion, becomes a little bit redundant there. I want Emil Smith-Rowe to pick up the ball in wide areas, and I want Emile Smith-Rowe to... um, you know, to be able to take people on drifting field and score goals the way he's been doing brilliantly this season. I just don't see how it works. Having said that, as I've said already, I'm not completely against the idea. I wouldn't mind seeing it again, but only if Lacazette's not available. Because for all the criticism and all the shit he gets, he is so important, Lacazette, to this Arsenal side. And he's so important to facilitating the, the creativity of others around him and to facilitating the thriving, if you like, of the likes of Smith-Rowe, Odegaard, Martinelli, Saka, etc., etc. So I don't want to see ESR as a false nine unless it's a last resort. I've not completely uh, dismissed the idea because I do recognise the team that he'd be doing it in now is much better than the one that he did it in previously. But to me, it doesn't really make sense. I've got to be honest. that, that That's just, you know, my view. I think Laka is, is really important to this team regardless of the fact that he's not as clinical as we'd all like him to be. And regardless of the fact that, you know, he doesn't score enough goals, he's key. And I don't think that ESR does that role anywhere near as well as Laka does, just because he's not cut out for it in terms of his skill set, in terms of his physical um, makeup. I, I just think it's a role in which he'd probably struggle. That's my opinion. Okay, uh, let's take this one from Steve. Uh, Old badge or new badge? Old badge. Always the old badge, Steve. Um, I I don't like Arsenal's current badge. I I feel like it looks like a cartoon. Um, You know, I'm a big fan of the old traditional cannons. I don't like the fact that they turned the cannon around in terms of the direction it points. There's a lot of reasons that I I don't like, um, you know, the current Arsenal badge, but always the old ones. Love the old ones. And um, I'm a big traditionalist. So, yeah, definitely would go back to the old ones if it were up to me. OK, Billy uh, says, if you could pick one midfielder out of Neves or Tielemans in the summer, who would it be? Interesting question. <coughs> I beg your pardon. There it is the uh, cold catching up with me. Um, Tielemans or Neves. It's, uh, it's, it's a hard one because... It depends on what role you're asking them to play. Now, what we've seen in the last few weeks is we've seen the left-sided midfielder of the three play in a a slightly different role. You know, we've seen Xhaka push right up the pitch, press and try to have an impact in the attacking third. We've seen him uh, play a totally different role to what we were used to seeing him play, where he was sitting in front of the back four and often facilitating the likes of Uh, you know, Kieran Tierney to bomb further forward and and giving people that freedom with his positional discipline. So um, I think that is something that you need to take in mind when, when thinking about this. I think Tielemans would give us more. I think Tielemans would give us more going forward. I think Tielemans is a, is someone who could score goals, who could create assists I think Ruben Neves, you know, there's, there's always been a lot made of, like, Ruben Neves's long-range shooting and, and various other elements to his game. And I think all of them are great, yeah? All of them are brilliant. All of those things are, are things that he's uh, very, very good at and very well known for. But does he score enough goals? Does he contribute enough goals? Is that partly down to the role that he plays in that Wolves team? Probably. But I just think if you're looking for a player to play on the left of that midfield trio, and do the role that Jack has been doing of late, where he's expected to get forward and he's expected to play much higher up the pitch, I think Tielemans is the better option. But if you're talking about as as being part of a double midfield pivot like we would have seen maybe a few weeks and months ago, then Nevers is the guy uh, in that sense. So I think just based on where we seem to be going tactically, I'm going to lean towards Yuri Tielemans. Okay, uh, let's take uh, this question uh, from Benjamin Noakes, who says, do you think some of Arteta's perception comes from him as a player of the club, as he's not seen as a legend, but a decent player? I think he's done some really good stuff as a manager in the sense he took over a squad that was a shambles. But do you think managers in general get sacked far too easily? As I said last week, I'm from Australia. And our major sport is AFL and coaches here last a long time, 10 years plus in some cases. The spotlight isn't nearly the same as managers in football, especially in Europe. Is this just a cultural thing? I think just the the need for results is um, an almost instant gratification is is in a place where it's never been before. I think people bring in a manager and think that they're going to turn around their fortunes instantly. And I think in a lot of ways we put a little bit too much. On the managers. You know, I always have this conversation with one of my brothers who says, Well, if the players have kind of been set up in the right way, if tactically he's made the right decisions and the player goes and misses a sitter or goes and makes an individual mistake that costs him a goal, you can't put that on the manager. Yet we will judge the manager. We will judge the manager on the results. And very often we will default to blaming the manager when actually he's probably done a pretty good job. And at the end of the day, the players have let him down. So I think it's a cultural thing. I think there's always been a culture in, in European football uh, of, you know, this we need to win and we need to win now, particularly with the big clubs. And if you don't, you don't get the results, then you should. The first thing you should do is look to fire the manager. It's It's got worse in recent years, for sure. I mean, you look at Watford. um, Manager sacked very early on in the season. Another one came in, Claudio Ranieri, and then they sacked him as well and brought in another one. You know, you look at what Marcelo Bielsa has done for Leeds and the fact that they've just sacked him. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a problem in, in modern day football. I don't like it. I've got to be honest. I don't like the fact that managers get sacked so easily. It makes me feel uncomfortable and it makes me feel like We're not giving them the environment in which they can succeed because we are so desperate for success. And yesterday, you know, you look at Mikel Arteta when he came in, right? The fact that we appointed a rookie manager, someone who's had a very clear idea and someone who was on board with the longer term project. That was it was clear to me at that point that Arsenal were looking to rip everything out and start again. But he's like most fans won't give him that time. Most fans have been sitting there saying, you know, he should go, you know, whenever there's a dip, even a temporary one, he should go. You know, I've been in a place where at times I've said maybe he's not the right guy. And that's just because of what we see around us all the time. People getting sacked left, right and centre, people being outraged about performances um, and and moments in games that were probably never in the manager's control in the first place. So I think there is a problem with that. Um, But I think it's just the way football is now. It's not a problem exclusive to the Premier League or exclusive to the European game. You see it in South America and everywhere else where football is very prevalent. So, yeah, it's 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 just the kind of way of the world at the moment. Okay, let's take this one from Crusader. Uh, how much blame does Ivan Gazidis take in hiring Unai Emery, who's a great manager, but wasn't stylistically a good transition from Wenger? And do you think, we should have gone to Arteta right after Wenger while he was linked strongly and started our rebuild early. Or was it right for Arteta to get an additional season and a half of experience under Pep before switching? Um, I think that Unai Emery was the wrong choice. I was quite big on that um, pretty early on and I got a lot of criticism for that just because I think the point you make is right, statistically, not the right guy. And I felt like Arsenal were doing what Tottenham are doing now, what Man United are doing now. Arsenal were thinking that despite having a squad full of bang average players and despite having a squad that was dysfunctional, that was clearly not invested, that was clearly not engaged, Arsenal thought that they could bring in a manager of a certain calibre who had experience and that that would be enough for them to put the band-aid over the problems and it still get us into the Champions League. And it so nearly paid off. Arsenal finished a point outside of the top four in Unai's first season and Arsenal lost the Europa League final. It nearly paid off. But actually, by the time it went south and by the time Unai Emery was eventually sacked, Arsenal had fallen further behind where they needed to be. Now, I don't I don't have anything against Unai Emery. I didn't think he was the right man because I felt like we needed a rebuild. And I don't really see Unai Emery as that kind of guy. I don't think his philosophy is strong enough to oversee a rebuild. I think Unai Emery is someone who goes into clubs, the likes of Valencia, the likes of Villarreal, where the resource isn't amazing, but it's enough to be competitive. He focuses largely on cup competitions, hasn't had traditionally a good record in league competition, Um, you know, and and I just think that Arsenal were banking on him getting this group over the line and then that putting us in a place where we were in the Champions League again and then could look to the future. The fact he was appointed on a two-year contract said from the beginning to all of us that this was not something Arsenal saw as a long-term solution. So we were wrong, in my opinion, to kick the can down the road and delay what needed to happen, which was this rebuild. By the time Arsene Wenger left, this squad, this group, this club, it was rotten to the core. So much needed to change. And because of a number of factors, i.e. maybe Unai not having it in him to rebuild, but also the structure at the club, which was a mess, and the fact that the club weren't willing to invest the kind of money they have been since Mikel Arteta's arrival, you have to say that, you know, he didn't get the backing. But That's because I think the club never really believed in him. And then if you don't really believe in him, why'd you hire him in the first place? As far as we understand, Mikel was approached at that point, but decided he wasn't ready um, or or decided that it wasn't the right time, which is interesting because it says to me even more so that actually Emery was was brought in as a stopgap and we all know what happened there. Look, Emery didn't do everything badly. You know, he gave opportunities to some young players. Uh, Martinelli, in particular, is someone who really thrived under Unai Emery, I think. And it's why we have such huge expectations of him today. So not everything was bad for Unai Emery, but he wasn't the man for a rebuild. And Arsenal needed a rebuild. Arsenal avoided the rebuild, thinking that they could get over the line by patching things up. The way Tottenham have been doing for five years now, the way Man United have been doing for a few years. So... I think for me, um, it was wrong to hire him. It was wrong to avoid what needed to happen. Uh, It was wrong not to rip it all out and start again a little bit earlier, but it's done now. And I'm I'm quite confident and optimistic about what the future holds for this club. Uh, Let's take this one from uh, Moss, uh, who says, I know a lot of people didn't and still don't want the Cronkies. But Harry, do you think we dodged a big bullet now? As many back then wanted Usmanov. And we've maybe avoided a disaster there. Yeah, look, I don't think anyone, um, you know, could have foreseen what's happening now in the world. And and I know, obviously, you're referring to the kind of the sanctions that are being imposed on, on Russia money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we've all seen what's been unfolding with Roman Abramovich in the last sort of few days. Nobody could have foreseen that. I think people looked at the Abramovich example and thought, well, He's come in and used it as a bit of a play, used Chelsea Football Club as a plaything, as a toy, as a passion project, put lots of heart and love into it, lots of money, most importantly. And it's led to instant success. And we kind of maybe felt or got sucked into believing that Usmanov was going to do the same at Arsenal and that we'd then become very successful off the back of it. I'm not a massive fan of KSE. I think they've done some good, but I think they've done a lot of bad. I think they've got a long way to go before they earn... The trust of the fan base. I spoke about it yesterday. I felt like if they had taken the uh, the ticket price rise on the chin, that would have earned them some goodwill. I feel like they missed a big opportunity to make a really good PR move and they haven't. But I also wouldn't want to be in a position now where we've got a Russian oligarch at the top um, of the tree whose future is so uncertain that it then places the club's future into uncertainty. Maybe we did dodge a bullet. I don't know. But maybe we'd have won more trophies, more big trophies over the last few seasons. Who knows? Okay, Um, I am going to um, jump into the comment section uh, for a few of your comments because um, this is a member show. So we do take the questions from our members. If you want to get your questions featured on next week's Members Mailbag podcast, sign up, become a member and you can submit them. Uh, via the Discord server. I will take a few of your comments, though, uh, from the live chat. Uh, Just a quick reminder that we have now teamed up with football prizes. So if you want the chance to win this signed and framed Thierry Henry Arsenal shirt, you can enter the competition, which ends on Thursday, the 3rd of March at 7.30pm. There are only 99 tickets available. So you buy your ticket, you get popped into the draw. And the winner gets the prize. The draw will take place on Football Prizes' Facebook page. All the information is in the link below. Um, But when I looked earlier, I think about 75 or so of the tickets had already gone. So if you want to get onto this, you need to get onto it quickly. It's an opportunity to win a Thierry Henry signed and framed Arsenal shirt. And let's face it, who wouldn't want that uh, on their wall? It's brilliant. It looks great. Get involved. Uh, So enter now for just £4.95. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see uh, what we've got in the chat. Uh, Sovereign makes a good point about Everton, who Uzmanov is, of course, invested in. Leaving what's happening right now aside, look at how Everton has run as well. It's a mess. Completely agree. Um, completely agree. Uh, Teren Tibbs is uh, is involved in the bids. He's, he's bid for a Lampard, Sheeran, and Canio shirts. I thought you were an Arsenal man. What do you want them for? uh hardik points out that emil smith Rowe is back yes he is pictures of him training at the emirates along with the rest of the team today which is great to see it was just illness that kept him out of the wolves game so i expected him to be back um and uh fingers crossed he's available for selection okay um just finally before i jump off uh, I want to say a big uh, hello to Tebow, who's coming to see his first Arsenal game in April against Brighton. Is block 64 a good one? I'm trying to think where block 64 is. I think it's upper tier. Is it upper tier? Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, yeah, it must be. I think it goes up to 32 downstairs. So, yeah, it must be upstairs. Yeah, the view will be amazing, mate. The view will be brilliant. And it's his first time in London. So, uh, look forward uh to uh seeing you hopefully in london and at the emirate stadium if you see me come and say hello Uh, it'd be great to see you guys okay i am going to leave it there uh just before i do (laughs) H, am an old school geezer basically old codger how do i sign up if you scroll down into the description of the video there's a bit that says join this channel to get access to perks if you just click on there it will take you to the page to sign up and we'd love to have you mate Okay, I'm going to catch you all a little bit later because I'm trying to hold myself back from coughing, uh, which is not a good look. So uh, I'll catch you all a little bit later on. Thank you so much for tuning in, as always. And we'll be back uh, very soon with some more Arsenal-related content. Until then, take care. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast.